All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book, Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. Hey, check it out, guys. I've got Gareth the Great on the line. Hi, Gareth the Great. How are you doing? Hi, Scott. Are we, are we actually on the radio here? <laughs> yeah, it's recorded, not live, unfortunately. But uh, depending on how good you do, you might become the Sunday KPFK show here. Although we, we're getting right. started a little bit late. I don't think it's going to be long enough because i got to go at the top of the hour. So, uh, right. But it'll be a hell of a podcast. Everyone's going to hear it, uh, which is good because they love this stuff. Um, that's why everybody listens to my show because they get to listen to me talk to you. Uh, my first question is, are you back now from Beirut? Yes, yes. I spent two weeks there uh, with my wife's family and uh, visiting my wife's family and um, not, not doing too much else. <clears throat> All right. Not, now, not really. I, I get it that you're not doing journalism there, but also there's a lot going on in Lebanon right now. And I know that you could help to explain it a lot better than a lot <laughs> of people, especially since you just got back from there. Um, can you give us some kind of update? I'm sorry. I know well, that's not what you wrote your article about or anything, but yeah, I think the, the key thing is that, um, there's no doubt that there's a showdown in the making in Lebanon politically which involves both, you know, the domestic, <clears throat> excuse me, the domestic forces there uh, of uh, those uh, opposing uh, Hezbollah and those supporting it, obviously, um, with with the international uh, sort of forces arrayed primarily, um, you know, against Hezbollah, with with U.S. I think leading the charge, but not alone. And, and that was what was really going on here when there was shooting in the street uh, while I was there uh, with several people killed. Um, and, you know, it, it was turned on and turned off uh, in a way that indicated that this was not just happenstance. This was carefully planned. Mm. Uh, so I think we can look forward to more of the same uh, in the near future. Yeah, well... I'm so out of date on Lebanon. I never did know that much about it in the first place. But I thought that there was a coalition between Michael Aoun, who is the leader of you tell me which Christian faction yeah. again, and and in a, he was in a coalition with Nasrallah and Hezbollah, right? And now are they at odds at this time? No, no, they're still they're still in the coalition. But there's the the extreme right uh, Christian forces under uh, Jaja. Um, are the ones who are pushing uh, and and in the forefront of the co confrontation, military style confrontation, mm -hmm. with with Hezbollah and its allies, uh, the Christian allies of Hezbollah, mm. and so that's what we were seeing in the street while I was there. And then, and are you saying that the U.S. is behind this? Well, I think in in some sense they are supporting it. I, you know, I'm not in a position to say that that they were explicitly involved in planning this, but I, there's no doubt in my mind that in a broader sense, they were approving of this general uh, thrust. That's, that's as far as I would go at this point. 
And now, but so this coalition of Hezbollah and the Christians, they are the ruling coalition, correct? And I know it's a weird confessional um, constitution there. I don't know how well you know that, if you can explain how that works at all. Well, you know, I would just say that, yes, there there is a, a political um, system that is based on, uh, you know, religious uh, religious factions, both uh, Christian and uh, Muslim, um, and that that is that has been the basis for Lebanese politics for generations, and it's now uh, in the process of really breaking down in the sense that that it's becoming uh, a, a the basis for a violent a violent confrontation, which we've not seen in in generations. Um, and that is because of pressure from the international system led by the United States. Um, the the uh, the outcome is is yet to be uh, clarified. But uh, look, I mean, uh, Hezbollah has the guns; they have the primary uh, military forces, and they're not going to allow themselves to be pushed out of power by. Jaja's uh, extreme right-wing Christians, um, and I think that's the bottom line here. They they hold the the higher cards. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think I need to be regularly reading Sharmin Narwani. For one, I know that uh, I'm way behind on this. Do you have any other good recommendations for regular writers on Lebanon? At this point, I I can't think of anybody who is really covering it. Um, that that deserves to be uh, loyally read. I think you're on the right track. Charmin's coverage is going to be reliable. Okay, cool. Man, sorry if I sound all nervous all of a sudden. I just got invited back on the Kennedy Show on Fox News. <laughs> I always get nervous when I get these emails from her producer. Like, oh man, well, that'll be well, fun. I'm going to say some anti-war stuff. <laughs> Ah, uh, man. Okay, listen, let me talk to you about this great article that you wrote. I love this phrase. You know, last night I did a presentation for a bunch of high school kids. It was quite a few of them. Um, uh, a pretty large group uh, for this guy's history class. And and they were some bright kids. They asked really good questions at the end, you know, like really insightful kind of ones and stuff. It was really great. But anyways, one great. of my answers to them was, you see, kids, it's all a racket. Like the soldiers call it, a self-licking ice cream cone. And I could see all their faces kind of light up because everybody likes ice cream cones. And then everybody pictures, tries to picture exactly how that would work. The ice cream cone has a tongue and it eats itself or does it start from the bottom of the cone or what? And the thing, and everybody just loves that. And even if they don't know exactly what it means, they, they know sort of what it means. Or it sounds yeah. like some terrible perversion of correct ice cream licking, you know? So, um, so, so it let's opens start up with that. That's your title. How the self-licking ice cream cone prolonged the 20 year war in Afghanistan. And you wrote it for Quincy and now it's at the, uh, antiwar.com site, of course. So, uh, go ahead and say things now, sir. Yeah. So, so this, you know, does in fact, um, use this concept of self-licking ice cream cone to, to analyze the, uh, the, you know, to, to explain why this war in Afghanistan went on so damn long. And uh, basically, it, it takes as its uh, sort of a second level of analysis, uh, Morton Halperin's three kinds of institutional interests, 
which I think uh, is a good way to sort of uh, encapsulate the uh, the range of of interests that were being promoted uh, uh, institutionally uh, that really spelled out the uh, the ways in which this war was prolonged. He he lists three three kinds of institutional interests as first budgetary uh, resources interests. That is to say the the interest primarily of the military services and the Pentagon generally in assuring that their budgetary resources are at least going to be maintained at the sufficiently high level, if not increased. And of course, in the case of Afghanistan, we saw that there was a huge increase uh, back in you know around 2009, 2010, uh, which was then maintained uh, it was based initially on the idea or the, the expectation that the U.S. military would be fighting in Iraq for, for many years. And unfortunately for the U.S. military, that uh, was, not, uh, was not to be because the Iraqi government um, allied with Iran, uh, made it clear that they wanted the United States out uh, over a period, relatively short period of years, and so there was a rapid, um, sort of a rapid uh, uh, reduction in U.S. forces over that period from 2010 to 2014, and that meant, of course, that somebody else, uh, you know, some other mechanism had to be found in order to fill that gap because the Pentagon had planned to have a 14% increase in their budget during that period. And this was based on the idea that the Iraq war would continue at a high level, but instead uh, it was going to dwindle down. And of course that meant that Afghanistan had to fill the gap. And so all those forces that were going to be committed to, uh, to Iraq had to be fighting in Afghanistan. And so that's why the war um, in Afghanistan was the savior of the Pentagon and the army in particular, and allowed those institutions to maintain the kind of level of budgetary resources that they had counted on. And so I think that's a key factor here in uh, explaining why that war had to go on and why it had to go on at a high level. Uh, the second kind of institutional interest that uh, was involved were mission capabilities uh, that the military is used to having assigned to them over some period of time. And of course, that meant that the, uh, the army had to find the missions uh, and the capabilities that went with maintaining their role in Afghanistan. And, and that was part of the deal in which the war went on and, and uh, they, they found constantly new missions. Then the third one uh, that Morton Halperin talks about is internal staff morale. And by the way, this is a little asterisk here. My, my piece, which I think was around 1200 words, should have been much longer in order to explain some of this stuff because what that meant in fact, although Morton Halpern himself didn't say so, was the senior staff morale, 
not just the not, it didn't have to do with GI morale. Right. These guys are with, on their seventh tour. <laughs> exactly. It was the generals who whose morale had to be maintained. Uh, and, and of course, the the war in Afghanistan uh, was turned into a perfect uh, you, uh, a, a perfect uh, way of doing that because it it was necessary to have rapid turnover of generals in senior positions, so or, or rapid uh, rapid turnover of senior senior uh, staff, so that m- the the maximum number of generals could be promoted to higher levels. Uh, and that's exactly what happened in uh, in Afghanistan. And as a result, you had uh, a historic uh, milestone here, which was that by 2020, uh, the U.S. military had uh, the same number of generals uh, that it had when uh, World War II ended, <laughs> which shows just how extreme this uh, principle was carried to uh, uh, in terms of maintaining senior staff morale in Afghanistan. Yeah. Hey, y'all check out our great stuff at libertarianinstitute.org slash books. First of all, we've published No Quarter, The Ravings of William Norman Grigg, our institute's late and great co-founder. He was the very best one of us. Our whole movement, I mean. And no quarter will leave his mark on you, no question. Which brings us to the works of our other co-founder, the legendary libertarian thinker and writer Sheldon Richman. We've published two collections of his great essays, Coming to Palestine and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other. Both are instant classics. I'm proud to say that Coming to Palestine is surely the definitive libertarian take on Israel's occupation of the Palestinians and Social Animals certainly ranks with the very best writings on libertarian ethics, economics, and everything else. You'll absolutely love it. Then there's me. I've written two books, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've also published a collection of the transcripts of all of my interviews of the heroic Dr. Ron Paul, 29 of them, plus a speech by me about how much I love the guy. It's called the great Ron Paul. You can find all of these at libertarianinstitute.org slash books. Uh, what a racket. You know, I did this uh, radio show in Chicago where the guy's anti-war, kind of a right-leaning populist sort of guy, so he's basically anti-war on Middle East stuff, but boy, when we got to China, he got all hawkish, and I was just telling him, oh man, all oh, that's so overblown, <laughs> and he was so resistant to hearing it from me, and then I said, come on. Everybody knows, you know, and I know, and the whole audience knows, everyone knows, America is corrupt to its core, and the key to it all is the military-industrial complex, the companies that make the ships and the long-range bombers, they bribe the government to continue these policies. And he said to me, you know, that does sound right, yeah. <laughs> I think, you know what, I think you, I think you really got a point there, Horton. I'm like, yeah, of course, man. Come on. China ain't coming here. China's already an overextended empire, man. They're not coming this way. Yeah. So, so this is, this is really true. That, not to start um, talking about China, but just to talk about the racket. Right. Right. The, the self-licking ice cream cone uh, is an idea which is really going to catch on now because everybody knows that it's true when you explain it. Uh, it it's clearly so true that it, it's undeniable. 
and and so it's it's really as I see it, this is this is the future of analysis of the war system. And and let me just add that uh, that there was there were points here that I really didn't have a chance to cover in my piece, but you know really to fill out this concept really should have been covered. And and one is that there was never any real national security need for. U.S. troops to be in Afghanistan from the very beginning. It was entirely uh, just uh, a convenience for the U.S. military to keep, uh, to keep troops there. And, and it was so obviously not necessary in, in U.S. national interest that, uh, as I've uh, written, and I'm sure you will recall when I bring it back to your memory, uh, there, there were uh, U.S. generals whose uh, whose primary interest was NATO, who were able to convince the Pentagon uh, that uh, that they should turn the war over to uh, NATO, uh, which had no business whatsoever running a war in Afghanistan. Right. Uh, but but they it was agreed to because it was regarded as such a sideshow of, of no real importance that uh, I quote in the book. No I quote in the book, Gareth, uh, General Eikenberry, before he was ambassador, yeah. Eikenberry. Yeah. Positively, he's not being, um, you know, cynical about it. He's saying that, yeah, this is a really great team building exercise for the NATO alliance. Yeah. Yeah. It was all about uh, the NATO alliance not having anything to show for itself. They needed uh, a war. They needed a cause. And this was a gift to them to allow them to to make that argument. And they made a complete hash of it. I mean, it was, you know, the, the NATO, the Canadian general who was in charge of NATO's forces in Afghanistan later wrote a book, as I've again written about years ago, uh, saying that we didn't know what we we're doing. We made a hash of it. And it was a mess. <laughs> yeah. So, well, so that's, and listen, it's also, it should be pointed out too, that a big part of the reason that they had, quote unquote, to stay in Afghanistan was just as a bridge to the war in Iraq. It was going to take them like a year and a half. I don't know why it took them that long. It's going to like a year and a half to build up the forces required to invade Iraq. And so they needed to be able to say to the American people, oh, there's a big old war going on out there. When in fact, there was just a couple of hundred guys and they let them get away. And in fact, I learned a new anecdote, uh, Gareth, about Tora Bora. Um, there was a piece in Task and Purpose about, it was a profile of the guy who was, you know, the man on the scene, the lead Air Force air controller on the ground, a one-man air traffic control and bombing run coordinator and everything. And he ran the entire air war at Tora Bora there, uh, attached to the Delta Force. And it, they just make the statement out of, you know, with no particular relevance. It just shows up there in the story of his life that they canceled the whole thing on December the 9th. When bin Laden right. didn't get away till the 17th. So even yeah. where I've always yeah. said, you know, they did call in some big air power and they could have got him, but they refused to send in the Green Berets and the Rangers like Delta was begging for. And the, never mind yeah, the Marines. Because... But in fact, they didn't. I, I'm giving them too much credit even for the air power. They canceled the airstrikes on the 9th. And by the way, they said because there was a friendly fire incident somewhere else in the country, they had really <laughs> scaled back other airstrikes elsewhere in the country that were as of lower priority. And so they had all of these extra planes 
for the Battle of Tora Bora. It all, the whole country worth of planes. Everybody's in Nangarhar province. And they canceled. So, I'm sorry, I'm just going on and reveals, on, but man. What, what this reveals, obviously, is that the operations of the U.S. military are never really about a genuine national security need uh, or requirement. They are about the internal interests of the national security state itself. Now, you know, there are conflicts within those interests, right? They're, they're not all the same. Uh, they're very different at, at, at the same moment and at different moments. So you see, you know, uh, some people within the military who are upset at what's going on and what's been decided. But uh, the, the reason is that other uh, institutional interests are being served. So that's, I mean, it's always about that. And, and you know, another point that I could have made and should have made, but didn't have the space was to talk about how, uh, you know, Afghanistan was a vehicle to make new major careers for both McChrystal and Petraeus. Well, Petraeus had, you know, he'd already started to make his career in Iraq, but and Afghanistan and McMaster as well. But, you know, I mean, these were, these were days when they were able to use a war to promote themselves. And it was nothing more than that. I mean, they knew that this war was unwinnable. As I point out in the article, uh, McChrystal uh, said in his campaign plan, that look, we have a fundamental problem here because the major interests in this society have already uh, decided that they need to align with the Taliban in order to basically prevent these warlords from wreaking havoc in the society. And uh, he had no answer to that. He never did find an answer to that. In fact, he, you know, the warlords were his allies as of necessity. Um, he decided to align with them. And he knew that that was a, a loser from the very beginning. And for, for Petraeus, of course, I mean, he knew that he was not going to win this war. Uh, he knew that it was not winnable. But he decided to go out because it was part of his career, career building plan. Mm. And so oh, I think everybody needs to understand that, that this is what these wars are really all about. Hey, listen, I got to tell you, I got more and more and more friends who fought in that war all the time. And I've been traveling a lot this year and I've met a lot of guys who, you know, fought in Iraq and or Afghanistan both. And, uh, that's the thing that gets lost in all this, you know, Petraeus and, and McChrystal and the rest of these guys getting their ticket punched, these State Department goons and CIA, you know, spooks and whoever people getting their jabs done, you know, for their own yeah. interest. They're getting people blown up to death and maimed beyond belief. And, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. you start your article out talking about this guy, Joe Kent, a Republican running for Congress. And I think you saw... Is that what you linked to here is this Fox News interview? Yes. So we saw right. the same Fox News interview where, hey, this guy takes it personally that these people lied the whole time because he took a sacred oath and risked everything and lost everything, including his own spouse. And as he complained in that interview, it was after Trump tried to get everybody out of Syria, which happened twice, that the military just essentially yep. said, belay that order and enforce Trump to back down and, and kept the people in Syria. But also, I think he said uh, he was an Afghan, I forget Iraq, but I think he was an Afghan war vet and had lost people there. And that's the part of this that always gets left out. It's all, 
you know, you could have all kinds of ruthless politics around who runs housing and urban development, but you're not talking about people getting the bottom half of their body blown off by an IED when it comes yeah. to the consequences of who wins and loses those, you know, political battles here. Yeah, it's about time that those issues, that issue particularly, be brought to the center of the entire political fight over uh, national security policy. I mean, that's got to be done. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, I'm about out of time here, Gareth, but I appreciate you coming on the show and all your great analysis. And am I right? Is it okay for me to ask you here for the record? Is it right that you're writing a new book about the origins of the Cold War with the Soviet Union in the 1940s? It's not about the origins of the Cold War. It's about the Cold War as precisely what we're talking about, a vehicle for the institutional interests of the military and the Pentagon particularly, and their non-military allies from time to time, but primarily the military and the Pentagon to advance their institutional interests. And it will document uh, new, some unknown cases of this, of how they uh, deceived the public, deceived the president, deceived Congress, in order to advance those interests. So it's really a complete sort of rewriting, not a complete rewriting, but uh, but a major uh, revisionist view of the Cold War in light of what both you and I now know about what it was really all about. Yeah, awesome. All right, can't wait. Thank you so much, Gareth, for your time. Thank you. Glad to be back, Scott. All right, you guys, listen, just about everything Gareth wrote in the last 20 years can be found in his archive at antiwar.com. And that's for Truth Out and for IPS News and Truth Dig and everything except the American Conservative Magazine. All of that stuff is at TAC, and we all just link to that. But um, Responsible Statecraft and, of course, the Gray Zone Project, uh, all of that stuff is at all those places I just named. And it's also all in the archives at antiwar.com. So go and catch up the scott horton show and anti-war radio can be heard on kpfk 90.7 fm in la apsradio.com antiwar.com scotthorton.org and libertarianinstitute.org